Hey church, we have covered a lot of ground in this series, but I hope you've picked up on the fact that Peter kind of has two roles here. Number one, you should see this on the screen. Number one, his first role is to shine a light on Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Lord, and, and Peter continues to point us to that truth. But this series is also interesting because, number two, Peter continues to show us what it's like to be a disciple. And what I love about this is that the gospel writers could have made Peter out to be some sort of perfect disciple, but they didn't. They, they chose to be accurate and show us how flawed Peter was, and yet how he also persisted. And even after some really embarrassing moments in his life, in the end, Peter chose to remain faithful to Jesus. And this is where our story intersects with Peter's story and how we strive to be faithful, but man, we are so flawed sometimes, aren't we? Just we get in the way of ourselves and we really mess this thing up sometimes. I remember telling a friend how excited I was about this series. It was earlier in the summer and, 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 and how we're going to you know, go into a series all on Peter and how Peter makes some pretty emotional decisions at times, but he turns out to be a great church leader in the early church. He's flawed, but he remains faithful. And as I'm telling my friend about this, um, they respond with, yeah, you know, you've always reminded me of Peter. And to that, in a higher register, I said, thanks, because I didn't take it as a compliment in the moment. But the truth is, after my emotions kind of got out of the way, the truth is, I do identify with Peter at times. And I hope that through this series that you have as well. Now, let's get back to this just for a moment. A couple of highlights. So two weeks ago, we looked at how Peter denied and betrayed Jesus. He had multiple chances to get it right. And instead, he did exactly what Jesus said he was going to end up doing. And Peter makes a mess of everything. But then last week, Pastor Jacob with a kind of a part two, he showed us the beautiful story of restoration and reconciliation that Jesus forgives and he restores Peter. And that is one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible because I think that's how Jesus restores us when we fail. I was someone embarrassed of my past, my mistakes. I didn't feel worthy of God's forgiveness and grace. I felt like I had mismanaged it so many times. But much like Jesus lovingly restores and he rebuilds Peter, that's the good news for us sinners, that the beauty of the love of God reaches us still. And this conversation over breakfast that Jesus had with Peter, it shows that all too well. Now, during this time, Jesus walks the earth and he proves that he did indeed resurrect. He did this for 40 days before he then ascends to heaven. And, and many don't know this, but Peter would actually go on to spend over three decades in ministry after Jesus ascended to heaven, 34 years. But think about that. He was only with Jesus for three years, and he had so much ahead of him after Jesus left. 
So, so now, moving into the section of Peter's life where he is a church leader, this really kind of changes things. He will still show some flaws, but we're going to see Peter prove his faithfulness to Jesus time and time again. And, and we are arriving today at an event called Pentecost. Uh, now, go ahead and throw this graphic up there for us. It's a, it's a timeline I made. Uh, to Pentecost. And here are some of the highlights for you, if you can't quite see it that well. So Jesus, if you don't know, he was, he was crucified during the Jewish uh, Passover. And then Jesus, he resurrects, and our counting of his 40 days on earth begins there. Partway through, if you can, if you can see this, partway through week six, Jesus ascends, and that is officially 40 days. Ten days after that, we have Pentecost. The Holy Spirit powerfully falls on about 120 people or so, and it changes everything. So let's talk about that change today. Jesus departs in the same day before we reach Pentecost, okay? So this is what I'm about to read to you is before Pentecost. Jesus ascends. Everyone heads to Jerusalem and look at what Acts 1.14 says. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Everyone together, anticipating what's to come, but not really knowing what to expect. And something great happens, because Peter is now bolder than ever. I know in our experience, we're hoping He's a little more calculated, but he's bolder than ever. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Okay, so first thing, Peter is fulfilling what Jesus had said not so long ago. If you remember, Peter, on this rock, this confession of faith that I am the Christ, I give you authority to interpret Scripture and lead. Now, that's my summation of Jesus' words, but you can go back and read those yourself. And now, Peter's doing it. He's literally doing what Jesus said. And the story moves forward, and they decide that Judas Iscariot must be replaced that they're not just going to hang with the 11, but that he needs to be replaced. And so they are some weeks removed from Judas and Judas's suicide, and, and they believe that they need to replace him. And they choose a man named Matthias. The disciples that were 12, then 11, we're back to 12, baby, okay? And Acts 2 picks up nine days later. Go ahead and bring that graphic back up. So, Moving forward to Acts 2, the Holy Spirit fell on about 120 people who then flooded the streets of Jerusalem during the Jewish celebration of Pentecost to share the gospel of Jesus. The Jewish people who were there, they had come from all over the region, really different regions, different languages, all in one place. And they were absolutely amazed at this pouring out of the Spirit. Some, though, if you know the story, were what I would call haters. Some of them were, okay? Like anything good that takes place, some 
will always be quick to make fun or critique. And so with some naysayers in the crowd, referring to this outpouring of the Holy Spirit as people who are simply too drunk, um, a boldness takes over Peter once more. Look at Acts 2. We're going to pick up in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. So of all the apostles that are there, Peter is the one to stand up and preach. But does that mean Peter has more authority than the others? No. And that's something that we would disagree with our Catholic friends about. But Peter is simply equipped to step up and lead in this way. This doesn't mean Peter was better or that he had something better than the other apostles or that the other apostles lacked. But Rock Vineyard, this church, you have a lead pastor and you have an executive pastor. One is not more in charge than the other. One does not have more of something than the other. The authority is equal, but the gifting is unique to the individual. Peter takes the lead to teach, and that is all we need to take from this as it comes to authority and the apostles. Now, the apostles, they are experiencing something um, that, is, that is absolutely insane, and it's together. It's a beautiful thing to witness, but again, like anything, people are suspicious, and let's be honest, some of us are the same way, okay? It's, it's, it's good to be discerning. I don't want to, you know, uh, feel like I'm, I'm the wet blanket onto you. It's good to be discerning. But there's a difference in being discerning and being a straight hater, okay? Right? They must be drunk. And the best way to combat this ridiculous accusation, you meet it head on. And Peter will not shy away from this. Peter does just that, as we just read. Um, he says, guys, chill out. It's nine in the morning. That's my you know, interpretation of Peter there. But then Peter, he goes ahead to interpret some scripture, just like Jesus said he would. But Peter does this, and remember, all of this is brand new. They did not have a book like this that Peter just opened up and turned to. Those weren't around. But Peter boldly quotes uh, the, the, the prophet Joel. Go to verse 16, Acts 2, verse 16. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in, in those days. And they will prophesy. So pause right here. As a pastor, one of the most common questions I get is surrounded around that phrase, in the last days. And I think it's really important to clarify what that means because some hear that and they immediately think of the spooky book of Revelation, which we kind of dispelled a lot of that last year. If you want to go back and listen to that series, um, you know, they, they kind of equate the last days as awful things in the world, the Antichrist, and all of that. But no, this phrase is simply indicative of a post-ministry of Jesus' world. 
the last days began when Jesus ascended to heaven. And the last days, those have remained to this day. So we are, yes, living in those last days, but that's not meant to strike fear into your heart or make you tremble as you try to figure out where the flying scorpions are going to come from or if you'll get left behind or anything like that. It simply means the Messiah has come. Amen? The Messiah has come. We can identify who that is. And who is that? That's Jesus. And now, as we sang, which was not planned, and that was really cool, we anticipate his return, right? Now, while we wait for that return, well, what do we do? If you know the story, they watched Jesus ascend to heaven, and they stayed watching because they're like, he's coming right back. And then God had to send some angels like, hey, guys, go, you know, we're going to do other things, you know. But here we are still waiting, right? So what should we do? Do we just wait around? Do we stare at the sky like they did? No. We actually have some work to do as followers of Jesus. Jesus, he's previously said in the New Testament, in the Gospels, take my message to the ends of the earth. And we also have what Peter just said from the prophet Joel. He's quoting Joel, you know, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and your daughters, they will prophesy. There's going to be visions, there's going to be dreams on my men, and, and even on my servants, men and women, my spirit's going to be poured out. Like this is what Peter's talking about. He's quoting Joel. And so sometimes when we hear the word prophecy or prophesy, we think this has to do with predicting future events and that's it. That's not always true. That's not always at least the correct interpretation. Sometimes it is. But to prophesy, to prophesy also means to proclaim, to teach, to mention, to call forth, to summon. Meaning, in the kingdom of God, men are not uniquely equipped to be the only ones to prophesy, to proclaim, to teach, to mention, to call, to summon. But we believe that women are as well. And the Holy Spirit does not work differently in a woman than it does a man. But in these last days, as Peter quotes, the Spirit is poured out on both. And here, if you don't know, we're part of the Greater Vineyard Movement, but also certainly here at Rock Vineyard, we believe in the elevation of women who are gifted to teach and to preach and to prophesy. Now, I I fully know there uh, were some issues that the Apostle Paul had to deal with with specific churches. But remember, as you encounter those direct teachings later in the New Testament, Paul is dealing with church-specific issues and never, not once, does he say women shouldn't do something in the greater church movement or that God forbids it. When he gets into the nitty-gritty, he claims, I do not permit That's a different sermon for a different day. Back to the story. Stay on message, Kevin. You've been off one week. Come on. But Peter, back to the story. Peter's interpreting and applying scripture. And so he he goes on to quote some Psalms. Now we're going to skip ahead to verse 36. And then he says this, verse 36. "Uh, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. What Peter just shared, pause, what Peter just shared is actually pretty shocking to most in the crowd because the crowd, they are comprised of Jews who have built their life 
and their identity on their faith, their Judaism, and looking forward to the Messiah, the promised one. But not only does Peter say that promised one was and is Jesus, he includes the fact that perhaps most people in the same crowd, you're the ones who crucified him. Not only did you miss the Messiah, not only did you argue with him, not only did you do those things, you killed him. So how do you think the crowd is going to respond to that? Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other disciples, brothers, what shall we do? The heart of these people were touched. They weren't combative. They weren't defensive. They weren't ready to destroy Peter and the apostles in this moment. God is obviously moving in these people. Peter is preaching boldly. The crowd asks a preacher's favorite question. What do we do now? Verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now pause. There's a little theological thing here, okay? Did Peter just say, to be saved requires repentance and baptism. Like, like, like both are necessary. Now, we have some friends who will hold that to be literally true. Um, but that is not the position that, that we officially hold here. Uh, that it is simple, humble repentance in Jesus' name is the start, and if you will, the finish of your salvation because it's all on Jesus and his finished work. However, baptism is obviously imperative. Peter is saying here that, yes, turn from your sins and believe in Jesus. And let's make this declaration public because we're going to baptize you in the name of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you remember, but a few weeks ago, we talked about the culture around the Caesars. The Caesars were these rulers, and, and people somewhat believed they were God. A lot of them did, and, and a lot of people were actually baptized in the name of Caesar back then. Uh, there were other rites of passage and pagan traditions that were taking place back then involving some sort of baptism. Peter, he's not making baptism this salvation mandate, but he's taking something that John the Baptist did as well, something the Caesars do, and something that is true, and then be baptized to show my allegiance is not to the Caesars. My allegiance is not to the empire. I do not pledge my allegiance to Rome. I do not pledge my allegiance to pagan traditions. This is Jesus, and it's Jesus alone. That's what's happening right here. And so Peter is saying, if this, if, if this is really taking hold of you, then let's show it. Let's take that step. Go be baptized. Verse 40, with many other words, there's a biblical precedent for a sermon to go like an hour right there, okay? I just want to throw it out there. I won't, because I love y'all. I won't do that to you, but 
Maybe sermons can be longer than I think. With many other words, he warned them. This is Peter. He pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That first church sermon preached had a response of 3,000. Not bad. Not bad. But when you also consider all of this in light of what Peter had done just two months earlier, I mean, he denied Jesus three times to this moment? That's unbelievable. I know it's not exactly two months, but roundabout a couple of months. That's unreal. And it makes you wonder what God could do in your life and in your heart and in your situation and in your marriage and in your family if you honestly just gave God a couple of months. I would argue give him a little bit more, but what if we started with just a couple of months? How different could your life be by December if we stopped treating God like an accessory in our life, like I'll fit him in with everything else? But instead, if we shifted our priorities to reflect his love, how could your capacity for love increase? Your capacity for compassion and mercy, your ability to forgive the unforgivable. The people took Peter's words to heart. They experienced life changed by the love of God through their faith in Jesus. And look at this, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. We spent almost three years up in Michigan, and there was uh, a wonderful uh, a church that had a few locations up there. Um, and they were simply called 242 after Acts 242 because they, they believed this was the vision of, of their church. That's all they needed. And, and they're doing great things. Um, but honestly, this verse, I mean, I totally agree. I think this is one of the most important verses in the New Testament when it comes to our life today as believers. Because I believe if we do the same, I think we could see the revival that we're praying for. I think we would find the community we're searching for. I think we would experience the love of God like never before. But for some, well, I don't devote myself to anything, but I'll show up on Sunday. When I feel like it. And maybe if I feel like it, I'll show up though, and that's something. But, but that fellowship stuff, no, nah, I'm out. No, no, no. Dinner together? No, I can't watch other people eat and chew. No, I don't have time. No. Prayer together? No, I'm, I'm good solo because you all get weird when you pray and you pray in tongues or you pray over people. That's not me either. But that's, but that's not how the church was meant to function, just all by ourselves, doing our own thing. And, and sometimes we'll show up on a Sunday and, and, and kind of do it together. That's not how the church is meant to function. That's not how the church was, was founded. That's not how it began. The early church didn't just show up and say, preach good today, pastor. But they came with expectation that God was going to meet them today. And they took ownership for themselves because they didn't just come and see, but they showed up and they committed. They were invested with, with one another. And then this continued. Look at this, verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Church, if we want to see a revival, if we want to see life change, if we want to see people come to Christ, this begins with you and I, you and me, us together being intentional in our time, in our, in our giving, in our, in our energy, and simply not expecting someone else to get things done, but mobilizing ourselves with glad and sincere hearts. Not just showing up, but taking ownership. And, and I love this, this phrase, with glad and sincere hearts. And they saw God move. I want to see a powerful move of the Spirit as much as anyone. But I think we also need to be the ones willing to raise our hands and say, it starts with a glad and sincere heart. And to this point, I have been a begrudging fair-weathered participant. That is not, by the way, that is not my way of passive-aggressively telling anyone in this church to get their act together. I promise you that. There is a trend I do see in the modern church, in the greater church, if you will, that does make gathering together on a Sunday a complete option with our faith, though. There's a trend that makes fellowship and life together a complete option in our faith. And I believe we're selling ourselves short when we refuse to gather together with the people of God and when we neglect to do this together. Now, listen, I know we're not always gonna get along perfectly. We, we have different opinions on this or that. That, that that's, that's fine. But if our purpose is built on Christ, then what's the holdup, people? What, what, like, what, what's going on inside of us? Because some of the people that I've come to love and, and, and I've come to love being around, they're really not all like me at all. My wife and I had this epiphany while we lived in Michigan. There were people of all sorts of age demographics, all different seasons of life, but it was one of our best small groups that we've ever had because we, we had, if you will, everything in common, and that was Christ. And we did things with Christ in mind. Some of my favorite people today they don't have little kids like me. Their kids are grown or they don't have kids at all. They don't have earrings or tattoos and they don't even drink coffee, borderline sin, but they don't even drink coffee. They read from the new King James version and they don't pay attention to sports, but their love for Christ, it's amazing. They, they, they embody the gospel and his love for others. It's so captivating that I cannot help but be in their presence. And I can't help but feel like I'm growing with God, just being around godly people. I can't help but try to steal their time when I can. And that's the unity that I pray that we seek as a church together. That, that, that is my hope and my prayer. So we have today in our text, we have the start of the church. It's right here at Pentecost in this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It changes history forever, and people are spending time together. They're selling their belongings to take care of each other. They are living life together. They are practicing the way of Jesus. 
And that is my hope. That is what my desire for us today. And if I can, if I can brag at all, just for a moment, I see it here. As I look around the faces in this room or, or the people who aren't with us today, but call this church home, I see these things happen here. And I would be in this community, whether I was the pastor of it or not, because I see this here. This, 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 this New Testament church is alive, it's active, it's healthy, and it's right here. And I'm proud of our community here at Rock Vineyard, but we can always take a step with God, right? We, we, we can all take a step with God. And I think we can take a page from Peter here and do something bold this week. I mean, just weeks earlier, right? He's denying Christ. And here he is preaching Pentecost, like one of the most famous like sermons ever. That, 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 is, that is so intriguing to me. And I want us to take a bold step this week. And, and maybe it's not preaching on the corner at Bardstown Road. Maybe it is. But maybe it's not, okay? Don't, don't, don't aim for too much and, 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 and expect that. But maybe it's simply being bold in your prayer. Maybe it's being bold at work. Maybe it's being bold in your faith. It's, it's being bold in your generosity. It's being bold in your invitations to others to actually invite someone into your life this week. 